And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Happy New Year. And notwithstanding yesterday's result, I hope you've enjoyed the last few weeks having a bit of time off and watching the Arsenal. I'm joined this morning by Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Morning. Happy New Year, Ian. Happy New Year, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll obviously talk quite a lot about the momentous game at the Emirates yesterday. Arsenal won Man City too. But one of the more pleasing things about what happened was the genuine feeling of positivity. It's a new year. And so I wondered after some bigger away wins and a fantastic performance at the Emirates, where is everyone on the hope-ometer? Well, quite different, I think, after the game against Man City, in a way. Uh, I think that having... It's been so long since you've watched an Arsenal team play against one of the really, really top sides and take it to them in that way and, and, and exert... Not just a sort of desire to express themselves and play well, but really smart organisation. I think the focus, the way that everybody played them. Sometimes when you're having to face a team whose perceptions are that they would win and that they're better than you in, in most metrics, you think, ah, oh, it needs every player to be on their A game. It needs every player to be giving, you know, 100% plus if possible. And it felt like that. And it felt like, I don't know, I just think there was a unity of purpose, of effort, a collective kind of feeling within that group where they just didn't look remotely fearful. Think about how many games you've turned up against a Man City or Liverpool or whatever with absolutely zero expectation and it's gone exactly how you think. And there was just an atmosphere and a vibration that felt I felt like Arsenal looked like a Champions League team, say. You know, like not afraid to play against anyone and thinking you could give any any team a game. And I don't think we've been able to say that about Arsenal against top teams for much, much too long. And it felt like things falling into place. So hopeometer-wise, I'd give that a 7 or 8 out of 10. But then if bad luck comes in and something mullers the team that we don't expect, it could easily zip back down to a 4 or 5. Well, let's hope bad luck doesn't come in then. Eh? <laughs> let's use the hopeometer for that as well. Uh, James, what about you? Where are yeah. you? Well, hopefully we, we, we used up a fair chunk of bad luck yesterday. I think Arsenal were pretty unfortunate in a number of circumstances, which we'll no doubt discuss. But I'm I'm up there. I'm like Amy. I think if Arsenal play like that for the remainder of the season, they've got an extremely good chance of finishing in the top four. It won't be easy to replicate that level of performance, but... You know they showed that they can do it, and and I think as well something that we've barely talked about is that they did it without the manager there, which I think is a testament to him, his staff, 
the belief that they were able to instill. You know, if you think of a young team losing their figurehead, their leader, you know, they might have gone into that game a little rudderless or maybe lacking in confidence, but we didn't see that at all. I thought that Arsenal deserve huge credit for the way they managed a really difficult week without a number of key staff and were able to produce a performance of that quality. And I think as much as the result is frustrating, you know, so much of the discussion I've had since the game with fans has been about the quality of that first hour or so, particularly kind of the half hour just before half time when Arsenal outplayed Manchester City. They really did. And I think everyone at Manchester City, players, staff, fans, they all know. Everybody knows. If you watch the match of the day analysis last night, they don't talk about City's performance. They talk about Arsenal's. And for a team that loses a game, that is very unusual. And it tells you that something really positive is happening. So I- I'm right up there on the hopometer. Stoney, I imagine you're the same. <laughs> I have sometimes been accused of being a little bit childlike in my uh, hope for this team. But I genuinely feel something special could happen. Things have to... Amy, you have your hand up. I'm going to stop talking and just let you in here. I just wondered uh... if actually, you know, you were optimistic anyway. Have they exceeded your optimism when you think about this young team? You've had belief in it all along, but do you feel like it's actually gone beyond what you were hoping for them or looks like it can? No, no. I I actually feel like yesterday's performance sort of crystallised what I've been feeling for a while. I, I saw it in glimpses against Spurs. We've obviously seen it away a little bit against Leeds and against Norwich when we destroyed quite weak teams, I think. But yesterday, when we we went front foot against one of the best two or three teams in Europe, and I thought, yeah, there they are. There they are. They, They are together. They are unified. We have got some of the best young players in the country. And I also, by the way, think Bukayo Saka is world class already. I don't. I genuinely do. I watch him. And Jonathan Liu, by the way, wrote a beautiful piece in The uh, in the Guardian about Bukayo Saka, which I urge every Arsenal fan to read, but just talking about him in such a lovely way. Now I, I, I see grounds for proper optimism. But as you said, Amy, things have to go right in a number of ways. We, need, we don't want injuries. We don't, we're going to lose some players anyway. And if we lose key players... But I just think things are moving beautifully in the right direction. And 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 one more thing, uh, James, the thing you said about the first 60 minutes, I thought the way we sort of still controlled it in the last 30 was actually very encouraging as well. I thought there was a, a real grown-up feel to the way they, they played yesterday, to, mm. the, to the tactical way they played, to their subs. And, and uh, yeah, because I think the manager is growing as well. Is is my feeling about it, and I and I, the way that that they were clapped off yesterday, the way that most people stayed and clapped them off yesterday, there was a really fantastic atmosphere in that stadium, which you don't often get for half twelve kickoffs, particularly on a on New Year's Day, and I I thought it was a wonderful feeling. Obviously, we were gutted, uh, but yeah, I'm I'm quite high. <laughs> yeah, I wonder when the last time uh, a losing Arsenal team received a reception like that was. I, I, do you know what? I I can remember uh, uh, the, the Carling, I think it was Carling Cup final in Cardiff when Arsene Wenger played the young kids against a very, very experienced Chelsea team and we lost 2-1. Drogba scored the winning goal. Of course he did. 
But I was almost in tears with the, the, the young kids and the way they played and the way they represented the club. And, and I, I, that is a very vivid uh, memory for me. There probably have been other times, but I don't feel like we've been as unified in terms of club and, and fans and players and staff for seven or eight years. I, I genuinely feel that. The last four or five years of Arsene Wenger's reign through Unai Emery and, and, uh, and now Mikel Arteta, this, this felt like a really... I mean, they say you learn more from your defeats and your victories. They're going to take a lot from what happened yesterday. And I hope things work out. It will be, um, uh, well, I'd feel vindicated. <laughs> yes, I was waiting for, for that, Stoney. Thing. You sitting on top of your mountain, yeah. looking down at us, you know. No, no, but <laughs> I have, no, no. I, I am, Amy, you're right. I am naturally, I am no, quite no, an no, optimistic person. No, 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 you're going to do that to us in not a bit. At, no, I'm not, but I am quite an optimistic person. And it was... It was joyous to watch the way they tore into Man City yesterday. And, and, and part of that fan reaction, I felt, was because as I was walking to the ground with Alexander yesterday, my son, and he said, if the players step up for the first 20 minutes, the fans will get properly on board. And that's exactly what happened. And I, and I thought there was a real togetherness um, yesterday. So in answer, so it was a very long answer, but hope-wise, I'm feeling pretty good at the moment. Kieran Tierney. James, what, what was it like where you were in the ground? I definitely felt looking around me, I, I was in the um, North Bank lower and there was an energy in the crowd. Again, like you said, Stoney, I wasn't expecting for a 12.30 kickoff and it seemed to grow and grow and grow and you felt this feeling of the fans being completely at one with the team on the pitch and sort of willing them on in every possible way with every sinew. And even after the game, I I took calls in the last, you know, 24 hours and, and had messages from sort of people that I haven't heard from for, for years or people in different countries. I, I, you know, I spoke to a mate of mine in America and someone else in Finland and a couple of guys I know who are Croatian and, and, and Serbian and they all touch base because everybody was like, this is, you know, this is the arsenal that, that makes you feel. I think it just... It, it, it's ignited something, something that we've sort of lost touch with a little bit because it's been hard. And yeah, that, I, yeah. Go on, sorry, James. No, I was going to say I, I was actually the person making those calls, asking people what it was like because I wasn't there myself. I was uh, dealing with a, a COVID-related situation in my household, but um, I was ringing around, you know, texting people who were there, and same. I was fielding messages from fans of other clubs as well saying that's the best I've seen Arsenal play for years. I think kind of the eyes of the Premier League were on that game. You know, I think everybody was watching it New Year's Day, it was the early kickoff, and Arsenal gave a such a brilliant account of themselves and I think that's fantastic. Yeah, and I I'm very envious of uh of you two being there because it did seem like it was a pretty special atmosphere and that reception the team got at the end as Stoney said, just speaks to the, the sense of unity that exists between players and supporters, which does feel fresh. You know, it does feel like something that's been absent for too long. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I, I, I remember I remember the podcast we did after we got a late equaliser against Crystal Palace. So we got a point <laughs> and it was so downbeaten. Oh my God, this is going terribly. So it, it, it does feel different. I, I don't feel, I've, I don't, 
know if I've ever felt quite this way about a defeat since, like I say, that time when losing to Chelsea in the Carling Cup in sort of 2008 or something. Um, but anyway, we'll talk. We'll talk uh, about the game. Uh, we did get beaten. Last minute winner. Um, can we have a fairly short discussion about VAR? It, it, because I don't know about you guys. I'm a bit sick of it. And I, I read a piece. I read another piece this morning on, I think, Football 365 which talked about the fact that on BT Sport they did go they did talk a lot about the VAR and and aside from anything else yesterday it was a brilliant brilliant game of football you know there was a lot of stuff to talk about can we do, can we talk for a minute about Aaron Ramsdale's 65 70 yard pass to Gabriel Martinelli which by the way was made brilliant by the way he brought it down and they took took on the defenders but We've got a goalkeeper who can pass better than a lot of the midfielders we've had in the last 10 years, Amy. This is something to celebrate, right? Yeah, it's an interesting thought that. It reminds me of a lot of... I remember often going to games, going back years when I was doing much more kind of straight match reporting. And sometimes you'd be at a game that was absolutely magnificent and you'd go in the press conference and all the questions would be about, you know, should so-and-so have got sent off or some contentious decision or whatever. And it used to bug me. I used to sit there going, but I want to talk about the football. You know, this was amazing. And yet there is a kind of predilection for instantly going to points of controversy in terms of how we, you know, we are supposed to analyse football according to the kind of wild world of of, of punditry. And and really, I'd, I'd... I think we should hear from James because you were watch- the one watching the telly. But, I mean, obviously I saw quite a few messages on social media and, and people having quite strong opinions about the way that they were covering the game. But match of the day, I thought, was, you know, again, they didn't have a massively long segment. Yet again, most of the analysis tends to focus, not all, but, it, you know, there is a kind of zoning in on those contentious decisions and we have to have a was it right or was it wrong sort of scenario and maybe that's the way we consume football nowadays and it takes the next day or a bit of dust settling to then have the more considered bigger views about what's going on in the in in the game and in the team and in the club because you know I think it I think one of the you know while everyone walking trudging away from the game was like just so gutted and and frustrated that there wasn't a tangible reward for all that effort. You could see everybody was like, oh man, we were good, you know. We were really good out there today. And that was in everybody's minds just as much. It's almost like a kind of good angel and a bad angel on your shoulders. And one of them's talking about all the decisions and one of them's just talking about, come on, this is a team here. This is a team the like of which potentially we haven't had for a while. James, go on, tell us about BT Sport. I mean, listen, there, there was a, a degree of focus on the decisions and I think that is inevitable really because football is a, a low-scoring sport and so things like a penalty award or a sending off have huge weight in the game. I mean, they are decisive instances and I, I guess television coverage is at the point where it's quite intertw- intertwined with social media and there is a kind of inevitable attraction towards these controversies you know these these isolated moments I think BT do go a bit heavy on the officiating at times for my tastes personally 
they use uh, Peter Walton, don't they, to kind of debate these uh, VAR decisions and presumably walk us through the logic. But I don't know how much that actually helps. Um, I thought Match of the Day did a, a pretty good job, as Amy said, um, even if it didn't necessarily come down on the si- the Arsenal side of things. You know, it was quite... Uh, it was quite different to the sort of analysis you'd read from many Arsenal fans of those instances, but I thought it was fair and I thought it was concise. I think there's a danger that when these moments become so amplified, they kind of bleed into all the discourse around the game and you do lose sight of those moments like that Ramsdale pass or like that Martinelli run down the left that so nearly ended in a wonder goal or like the fact that, you know, there were still footballing reasons that could have swung this game as much as you know, the the red card or the penalty award was a knife-edge thing. So is Gabriel Martinelli missing a, an open goal from 10 yards out, a knife-edge moment that completely changes the course of the game. And, you know, it was just kind of a... It was a strange game to analyse, I think, because there was that first hour in which Arsenal were excellent. I agree with you in the last half hour, they were much more solid than they might have been previously. But there was that crazy two or three minutes in between where the match basically flipped on its head. Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. And, and, and Gabriel, uh, there was a, a question about whether he was booked for dissent or whether he was booked for roughing up the penalty spot. And, and anyone who messes up the Emirates pitch, I mean, I don't care if they're taking a penalty against us, stop that. But it, it seemed like a sort of pointless, if he was booked for dissent, it seemed like a slightly pointless booking it, it, it almost felt like he was like the fifth player to come and talk to the referee and the referee went, right, you're having a yellow card. And then and then suddenly he gets another one for, and he deserved it for the second one, I guess. I mean, I know that we're going to talk about Granit Xhaka, uh, Amy, and I know that you interviewed him and that's a, a very uh, interesting and insightful piece. And he does come across in a different way to how you'd imagine him. Um and he did get squared up against Bernardo Silva. He's not going to be the first person to be bamboozled by Bernardo Silva's dribbling. I actually thought him and Partey looked very, very good together yesterday for that first hour. I think it was the best uh, of Partey in an Arsenal shirt. Um, oh, yeah. There were little yeah. moments where he was, you know, a little clever touch to, to find space or a driving run. He just looked more powerful. He looked more on it. He looked more in tune with his teammates, his surroundings, the environment and the game. And um, it just felt like an absolute bummer. It's about to go away just as he probably (laughs) showcased exactly what you hope from him in the middle of the pitch. But the fact that he did it in a game of that magnitude as well is helpful. And I think, you know, the thing we can hope for is that we keep good contact, which I'm sure Arsenal will while he's away with, uh, with Ghana, the African Cup of Nations, and that when he comes back, uh, he's unscathed and feeling um, as motivated and ready to kind of walk back into the side and pick up where he left off. I, I'm still pondering how best to cover for his absence because, you know, when he can play like that, that's a big loss. Yeah, yeah. Um, James, in terms of the penalties, we'll just have one little discussion about this. Um, I thought the one that Granite gave away was a definite pen. I I have mixed feelings about Martin Odegaard's. I I I think it it could go either way. I sort of wish that VAR wasn't involved and the referee just made a decision. <laughs> if I'm totally honest with you, because um, I think the referee saw uh, Bernardo Silva 
go over a little bit too easily and went, no, I'm not having that. But when you see the shirt pull, you think, yeah, that is a pen. As for the other one, I'm not so sure. Um, we didn't get the rub of the green, though, did we? Let's be fair. The decisions went mainly in Man City's favour. Yeah, it's such fine margins. I mean, I do think I do think the interesting thing about the penalty incidents is while the referee didn't give them in real time, I wonder if that is actually his opinion or if there's a degree to which in not giving them, he's sort of deferring to VAR. You know, he's like, I'm not going to make the decision. If there's something to overturn, they'll tell me. I wonder if that's in their mind because while I think both penalties could be debated, my gut instinct is that in a pre-VAR era, they're probably given. Like, I, I just think they looked like fouls on first viewing. And so I, I find it interesting to kind of understand the internal process. Like, is there a sense in which the referee's going, I'll let the other guy decide this? I don't know. It, it, it felt a little like that to me. And given that, I completely understand the frustration of Arsenal fans of, you know, why was one the referee asked to look at one and not the other? I think my opinion is that the Shaka one is more a penalty than the Odegaard one, or more obviously one. I think there's an angle of the Odegaard one where it looks very much like he is fouled. There's equally an angle where it's pretty unclear and, uh, you know, they didn't get to the right angles to suit Arsenal quickly enough. So, yeah, it's it's really hard. I think the problem is that VAR gives you kind of the illusory promise of objectivity and the illusory promise of accuracy. And I kind of feel like the degree of anger that you see from fans is almost a consequence of that. It's like you've promised something that is fairly undeliverable and therefore when the system breaks down, it's all the more frustrating. And that's why I was never really somebody who advocated for VAR, who desperately wanted it. I sort of think there's going to be human error or at least human subjectivity at some point along the line. And I would rather that that point was on the pitch with the players. I think that's a fascinating analysis, James. And I always thought with VAR, I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever done any, have any of you done any officiating of any level? Yeah, I've done a couple of games. Have I've refed a couple of okay. games. Okay. Uh, yeah. Linesman at Sunday League, I don't think counts. So Doesn't I won't it? say that. Well, it's still, <laughs> it's still, You're officiating. It's, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I mean, in my very, very limited experience of running the line at sort of mainly under 14 or under 11 matches and trying my best. There are times when the ball ricochets about and goes out and I have no clue who it came off, you know, and I don't. And, I, and those are those moments where I I, I sit and I, I look plaintively at the referee thinking, can you just make this? Because I don't know, you know, mm. and there must be a lot of examples in in any game um where the referees and their uh, helpers and assistants are making best guesses because, you know, certainly in the pre-VAR age and, and, and what have you, that was how it was always done. And it was done on trust that a referee was going to do his best and not be biased. And you have to cling to that ideal. You have to, otherwise we're all screwed, you know. I like that idea that actually, and I don't think it's part of the system though, that the the official, if he's not sure, can say to his VAR, could you have a look at it for me because I don't know. I think there's an honesty in that. And I I, I like the idea that, it, okay, clear and obvious, the, the VAR says, hey, you missed that, I've got to tell you about that. But 
I think there would be something helpful about if it was part of the system that a referee on the pitch, if he's not sure and he doesn't know which way to give it, rather than giving something and it may or may not be overturned, can actually ask his VAR for help. Mm. There, there is a whole thing, isn't there, about not undermining the referee. Whereas yeah, I actually, they're not I think, superhuman, are they? They're just not going to be able to see everything in real time. I totally agree. And like I say, in real time, he all he saw, all Atwell saw was... Um, was Bernardo Silva go over a little bit too easily? When you see the replay, because I didn't see it in the stadium, he has got hold of his shirt and you go, oh, I even saw someone say, well, he only hold, held on his shirt to keep him from going over. And I thought, <laughs> I love watching he was, fans. He was on well that. on his way, wasn't he? He was well on his way, you know, but I think you go, okay, probably a penalty. I, I don't want to uh, talk... Again, yeah. as I said before we had this discussion, I don't want to talk too much. I don't want to talk uh, too much about, about VAR, but let's talk about VAR. <laughs> but like, well, we sort of had to, really, because it was, as James, James, exactly as you said, it, that they do tend to be pivotal uh, decisions uh, in a game. Uh, we didn't get the rub of the green this week. I don't believe, and you can tell me if you disagree, I don't believe there is a conspiracy against Arsenal. Um, uh, I, I think maybe Granite Xhaka gets a bit, less of a, a of a positive outcome with with tackles that he makes compared to some others but um hey it didn't go our way this week but let's just maybe celebrate uh, what was a fantastic spectacle um uh, and uh, we we uh, we stood up as amy said at the start we stood up against a uh, a very very good team and didn't look out of our depth at all which let's be fair has not been the case uh, in the past the duel between Tomiyasu and Sterling was really something mm. to watch, wasn't it? Mm. Sterling is strong as well. But Tomiyasu, my God, what a rock we've got a right back. He was phenomenal. And apparently um, when he was out with COVID, uh, and I think it's probably typical of his character, really, that he worked his absolute nuts off at training at home alone. You know, he was going to make sure that he was absolutely ready to come back as quickly as possible. And he's got that inner will to be so uh, dedicated to what he's doing. And that showed because he walked back in the team against one of the hardest opponents he'll face all season. And what I really loved was that it often needed more than one person to stop Sterling because he is, as you say, so incredibly strong and it felt to me like there were moments in the, you could probably make a compilation of moments in the past where Sterling, who has scored a lot of goals against Arsenal, would you know would just get past his direct opponent and be in. But Tommy Asu was so phenomenal in his kind of concentration of, uh, and and the way that he used all of his kind of instincts and physicality and determination rolled into one to to keep close to him and stop him from getting space and getting past him. But if he could get, if he got a little nick on the ball or he got in in front of him, Sterling often can still come away with that ball and then somebody else would arrive, whether that was Ben White or Saka or or Partey or someone else helping. And I think it was that way that Arsenal managed to keep that defensive resilience and composure collectively that really, really impressed me. You know, it didn't feel like everyone was out there on their own, like, you know, with a bit of a Hail Mary and cross your fingers and hope for the best against somebody good. It felt like they really knew what they were doing to support one another, to make sure they had that platform and foundation to attack with confidence and courage when they had the chance. And that's where I think 
you know, we don't have to go too far back. I think what was it, the the one one draw with Palace you mentioned earlier, um, Ian, where everybody was so disillusioned. I think with that two two actually uh, two two okay was, yeah. But everyone was everyone was so disillusioned with uh, I suppose the style with that version of Arteta ball being very you know the horseshoe passing the side to side slowly slowly is it going anywhere not make not creating chances not having shots not really feeling like there was much uh, penetration in the in the attack or much belief that they knew what they were how they were trying to attack and then suddenly you look at as a blueprint that game yesterday. It feels like a completely different vision of Arteta ball, if you want to call it that. Now, maybe that was what the manager was get, was going for all along and he would say things and it would not add up to what you were seeing on the pitch. But the kind of football that he says that he wants to play, if that's what it is, that's a completely different story. I mean, that is true, actually, James, that the goal, um, if, if Amy's talking about Arteta ball, uh, the goal that we scored from Ben White to Tommy Asu to Partey to Xhaka and that quick pass inside uh, forward to um, to Odegaard, out to Tierney, and then that beautiful pass across to Saka, all along the ground, all within about five or six seconds. That is the sort of stuff we want to see, right? Yeah, certainly. Everything clicked in that move, and it has done quite a few times recently, particularly going forward. You know, that's been the big change, I think, in the last few weeks that as these team, this team begins to understand each other and understand their roles, we're seeing a lot more fluidity in attack. Just coming back to the defensive shape and the performance of Tommy Asu, I think that one of the reasons that we're so encouraged by this game is that it's a clear marker of progress even since August. You know, you think of that, that game before the transfer deadline and the first international break. 5-0, was it, to Manchester City? It was. We, we went down to 10 that day and completely went to pieces. It was not really a contest of any description. And granted, we were at home this time, but I think you saw how far this team has come, how different it looks for a start in terms of the likes of, you know, Tommy Asu, White, who we didn't have that day, I don't think, Ramsdale and others, um, Martinelli. But also just the organisation, the application and the belief. The belief is completely different. And Arsenal's performance against Manchester City, both with 11 and 10 men, was characterised by a kind of fearlessness. And that has been absent for a long time. So I, I think, yeah, it's it's a, a dramatic change from where we were at the start of the season. At the, and at the midpoint demonstrates, you know, a clear trajectory for the, the journey that we've been on. And hopefully it's one that we can continue. Well, it does sound like the hopeometer is fairly high, uh, amongst us all. Uh, let's hope it stays that way in a couple of weeks after we've played Spurs away. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We better beat uh, with the handbrake at time. Now, uh, Amy spoke with Granite Xhaka towards the end of December. Uh, it's a fascinating read. Uh, we're going to discuss a couple of uh, standout points. Um, Amy, your piece started with him discussing his relationship with the fans and the whole thing that happened uh, uh, at uh, the Emirates after the game against Crystal Palace. Um, before we talk about it, here's Granite discussing the incident. This is part of my life, for sure, because um, I had, of course, difficulties before, but not in this type of, of, of thing, because this is something else. You can have problems between players, you can have other problems because you come too late or something happens, but not this type of thing. But this is part of, of, of my football career, and um, but in the end, I took it very positive. You know, I think it's very interesting about all that. I mean, it was all about him being captain at the time. Uh, yesterday, <laughs> during the Man City game, Lacazette came off, gave the captain's armband to Granite. No one batted an eyelid. So it turns out he's captain again, Amy. Um, he seems to have responded in the right way to what happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember at the time that it felt like there was no way back. Uh, it felt like the, you know, the split was kind of irretrievable. So the fact that he has come back is a, a sort of fairly remarkable thing on the part of probably both him and the club and to an extent the fans. Uh, but obviously he remains this curious figure, let's just say. I think in terms of perceptions, I think if if you ask Granite to or his mates or his family to describe him, then a lot of the things that they would say are not the same things that a lot of Arsenal fans might say. And that interests me. You know, he has this almost double life. Uh, it must be incredibly weird to live like that, where you're, I suppose, you're, I wouldn't say a private life is not quite the right way of saying it because it obviously includes, you know, everybody he knows at the club and, and is with on a, on a daily basis. But the people who actually really know him as a human being just th- think the world of him. And and they like him and admire him so much that it, I think, allows them... Nobody's blind to his moments of recklessness or stupidity or whatever. But I think the people that know him managed to accept that as part of him. And what they like outweighs it so much that they, that they can handle the, the whole package. Whereas, obviously, fans watching in from the outside uh, who don't have the benefit of getting to know the whole other side of Granit Xhaka's personality and his importance and all the things that we don't see that he does that make a big difference around the place. You know, the judgment is purely on what you see on the pitch, really. And he is an extremely single-minded, driven uh, character. And he plays that way. And I don't think, I mean, obviously, it's not really going to change because he's getting towards 30 now and has played the same way I think his whole career but I wouldn't doubt for a moment his uh, his love for Arsenal whether that's enough for some people to temper their views I, I, I don't know but he he fulfills a role within the club 
that is really important because he's the guy who's there for everyone. He's the guy who wants everybody to give their maximum all the time to feel good about themselves. He wants to help everyone. He wants to be a good example. He wants to lift them when they're down. I imagine that he's probably someone in the dressing room, although some people might say he was culpable for the result. Obviously not the only one. I mean, the you know, the penalty is his fault. The the uh, the sending off was all on Gabriel. You can argue how much either of them that deserve those decisions, but they were the guys that were involved in those moments. But I imagine that he will be key this week to trying to make sure that everybody uses that experience to galvanise this team and to galvanise yeah. their own personal desire to improve. Well, it, I mean, here's, here, here's uh, Granite talking about the very thing that Amy uh, has just talked about, how he describes himself uh, and his values. People I'm working every day and I'm seeing them every day and try to give them a lot of respect because I grew up like this. doesn't matter how old, younger or older you are. I try to respect you. This is the important thing for me because they see me every day and I see them every day. I know how... And I feel very, very, very good when I'm addressing. I feel I have a lot of respect for people. I think I'm a different type of person on the pitch and off the pitch. I like to joke off the pitch. I like to, to be funny, to, to, to laugh a lot. But on the pitch, I'm the guy who I have a lot of passion. And I can't change myself because of the people. So I wish the people from outside they can understand this one a little bit more. <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> I wish we could as well, to be honest with you. Uh, James, as I was walking away from the ground yesterday and I was chatting to Alexander, my son, and we were talking about Granite Xhaka, as we often do walking away from the Emirates, and um, he said the thing about Granite Xhaka is that Arsene Wenger trusted him and wanted to play him every minute of every game. Uh, so did Umay Emery. So does Mikel Arteta. He does seem to be the guy that whatever he, whatever our feelings as, as fans uh, are about him, he seems to unify the team. And you've been quite supportive of him in the past. Uh, and, and I wonder how you felt about him. Um, <laughs> uh, do you feel better about him having listened to the interview? Mm, to be honest, the interview confirmed what I already thought about Granite. My, my, my sort of basic opinion is that as fans, we only have a certain amount of inf information on which we judge these players. One of those is games. We watch the games, obviously, and that's a pretty big factor. Now we have access to things like uh, statistics. We have maybe a supporter's better tactical understanding because that's such a growing interest area in the game. But there is still a vast amount of what goes on inside a football club that any fan or even any journalist cannot be privy to. And that is the interpersonal dynamics and politics of any team or club. And I've just always had the suspicion and my, the impression based on conversations that I've had that Granite has a very significant role within the team in those particular areas. And if it's something that we look at from the outside and we go, why do, what, something doesn't add up. Why do they like him so much? Why do they respect him so much? The answer is not that everyone's an idiot. The answer is there's something there that we don't see or that we don't have access to. And... I think in his case, 
that that's clearly the situation. The other thing I think that's fascinating about granite is that we do this thing in sport where <laughs> we we think people are more malleable than they are. So we look at like a guy in his mid twenties, and we might do it with a technical thing. We might say like, if he could just have a bit more composure, you know, in front of goal. Oh, if he adds that to his game, he's really going to be a player. Or we look at Granite and we say, if he could just not be so emotional on the pitch, you know, that's the next step for him. Yeah. But I think there's an extent to which people are what they are. And you can't select for psychological components and remove one and then have a complete player. They are a cocktail and a conundrum and... The choice is, do I accept this individual with their flaws, not how do I remove their flaws from them? And I think in Granite's case, there is an acceptance from the team, from the staff, that his positives are offset by certain negatives and it's something that they are prepared to accept. I think it was so interesting that um, when he was injured and out for what was supposed to be three months, that... Mikel got hold of him and said, I want you to be around, you know, most of the time when someone's injured, they, you know, their rehab is the uh, domain of the medical department. And there was a very clear sort of agreement that, that wherever possible, Granite would remain around the team. Um, That doesn't happen very often, I don't think. Uh, And he said what I also thought was interesting that he spent quite a lot of time as as well as sort of talking to players and being around for them. And, you know, he enjoys that part of things, but observing. And he said, when, you know, obviously when you're, when you're a player who's, who's playing, you're quite in the zone. So when you come into training on you're you're either recovering from a game or preparing for the next game and you're in that kind of rhythm and routine. And when you're not playing, you know, your headspace is slightly different. So while he was focusing on his own rehab, he was also looking around the team a lot and watching and seeing areas where he felt there could be improvement around the group because he had that space to do so. And I just thought that was a really interesting little insight, not so much about Granite, but also about Mikel and how he felt that having that viewpoint uh, and having those bits of insight that he would share would be really useful to the team as it evolves. Yeah, I, so we can we can see, can't we, that there is obviously that relationship. He's almost a conduit, really, between Mikel Arteta and the team, and those things are massively important. The relationship with the fans is we know is slightly more complicated. Um, let's end this bit of chat then with that relationship and remember you can read the whole interview on The Athletic we've just taken a snippet of Amy's conversation uh, because Granite had a message to the fans about his commitment to the club of course after um, what happened two years ago I think we was very very far with each other and I think everyone understands as well from them side from, but as well from my side but I think we are coming step by step closer and closer and closer I don't believe we'll be best friends I don't believe but what I can tell the people is that from the first day until the last day, I fear my contract and I will be here. I will do everything for the football club. I don't need a best friend, James. Do you? I, I, I don't know about you. I, I just don't want him to give away any more penalties like he did yesterday. That would yeah. be enough for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, you know, 
I've just spoken about how important granite is in the dressing room and all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. I still feel exasperated with him at times. And in fact, in each of the last three or four games, there have been a moment where I've sort of gone, oh, granite. <laughs> dwelling like, on the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Dwelling on the ball, lunging into a tackle. He doesn't need to, you know, getting involved <laughs> yes. in something, giving the penalty away yesterday. I mean, fairly consistently, it tends to be in the second half of a game that we're doing quite well in. He'll just have a moment that's got me, you know, tearing what's left of my hair out. But I think uh, it, 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 it is who he is. Like th- these moments are not going to go away. We would be incredibly naive if we felt that was the case at this point. And I think the, the situation is that he's not perfect. He is flawed. But of the midfielders we have available, in Mikel Arteta's opinion, and I have to say mine too, he is one of the best pair and he's in that 11. And and the reality is that in the next few weeks particularly, we're going to really need him because Thomas Partey is going to be away at AFCON. Um, who knows for how long? So, yeah, it, it is. Do I think that in the future, we will look at that area of the pitch as an area that we can improve? Do I think there's a better player out there than Granite Xhaka for this team? I do. Yes, Absolutely. But we're not there. I know you do because I read your tweets yesterday and I'm in total agreement with you about one in particular. We'll talk about that in a minute. But 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 we're not quite we're not quite there yet, I don't think. And and at the present moment, he is still an important player in this side. And you know, we in fact we have looked better since he's come back in. And he's not even played, I don't think, individually brilliantly in many of those games, but he has improved the stability of the team. And and what sums up Granite Xhaka, I think, more than anything, is that he had that nightmare moment in the penalty box, gives away a penalty that lets City back into the game. I thought in basically every other second of the game, he was excellent. <laughs> and that's that's yeah. who he is. I wonder how much that drives a, man, a manager a bit mad because you know we've mentioned how all his managers mm. play him all the time and you know you just wonder whether whether they have those same feelings as fans it's like oh you know you've done almost everything right but the thing that has caught you out is been caught really costly well maybe they accept the flaws like everybody else amy you know they just look at a player and go we know we can see what he gives to the team and we know what he's like in the dressing room and we just accept that once in a while he's going to do something stupid and we have to live with that because of the positives outweigh the negatives. Yeah, but again, I think, you know, all managers probably strive for as much perfection as possible. So it does feel like it might be one of the, the next areas to be, you know, building for this team to, to try and have a situation where those flaws are less exposed. Well, let's have that. Let's have that chat. You can read the whole piece uh, about Granite Xhaka, Amy's piece, uh, over on theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. We're going to have a brief chat about the January transfer window. James, I'll come to you first. Um, I I would, I'm not saying I would sell my mother for Declan Rice. I've, I mean, I really wouldn't, right? But I certainly would maybe rent her out or possibly, I don't know. I think... I look at the way Declan Rice played when we played West Ham a couple of weeks ago uh, and I just thought, oh, to have a midfielder like that next to Thomas Partey. But that's not going to happen. So let's, should we deal in reality? Um, 
Perhaps. Seems a shame, but okay. It, it, it isn't going to happen. I, I think he's he's always been a Chelsea boy, and I think he'll end up going back to Chelsea at some point. Where do we need to focus uh, in the January transfer window? Because it could be crucial for us, couldn't it? It could be, and I do wonder if the owners will be encouraged enough by what they're seeing to think maybe there's an opportunity here to kick on. Arsenal are one of those clubs that you know have cash flow solutions with the Cronkies behind them. And there is an opportunity there, I think, for a Champions League place, maybe ahead of schedule, maybe ahead of where they were thinking we might be at this particular time. The areas are, I think, pretty clear. I think central midfield is certainly one for all the reasons we've just discussed regarding Granite, but also a lack of depth maybe caused by AFCON, maybe caused by the possible departure of Ainsley Maitland-Niles. I don't think Mohamed Elneny is a big part of the long-term future of the club anyway. There's definitely a gap there. And the other one, of course, is centre-forward. Partly an inevitable step taken due to the age of Aubameyang and Lacazette, but of course everything that's gone on with Aubameyang may accelerate those plans. Um, I, I I am on the fence. <laughs> uh, everyone will be shocked to hear about whether or not Arsenal are going to actually bring anyone in in this window, simply because I think that we have to give credit to the recruitment. It has been much more, um, well, successful, but I think because it's been more strategic and more considered and intelligent in the last 12 months particularly, and I don't think they'll break that plan for a short-term solution. I think they're not looking for a body. They're looking for the right people to be kind of tentpole figures in this team going forward. And doing that in mid-season may be difficult. I think if they can't get the right person, I don't think they'll do it. Amy, um, what about Ainsley, by the way? Do you think that they should let him go, considering that um, Thomas Partey is off for the for the month? I think that's a big risk, unless they bring in someone else. And I do think that the loan market is one where, you know, it's not easy to get it right, but they, you know, they sprung uh, Erdegaard out of that particular magic hat in January a year ago. He's worked worked out very well. Exactly. So it, you know, if I suppose if you have the kind of sliding scale of, of January loan experiences, you sort of could maybe go from Dennis Suarez to Martin Odegaard or whatever, but uh, you know. But will West Ham loan us that? <laughs> Depends how much uh, how much value they see in Ian Stone's mother on on loan as a rent. In, in, in. Um, I can't get into that conversation no, on this book. I think, uh, but I but I think if if they are if they don't want to or can't commit to the right piece of the jigsaw for the longer term that fits in with the strategic plan, and I, and there are definitely people that they have got their eye on in in certain key positions for that, whether they get them or not and when remains to be seen. But, you know, they're very, they've definitely got thoughts, I think particularly in the centre-forward department. But it may be that loans get them through because I think, for example, if you can get, a, you know, some money for Ainsley and his future is clearly not no longer at Arsenal and the money is available now, it might be worth taking. I mean, you know, Arsenal have experience of situations where there was potential money on on, on the table, for example, for Eddie uh, last summer. They didn't take it. They obviously won't get any money for him now. Uh, well, I mean, it's possible someone will try and buy him in January and, and there will be a, a, a interesting enough fee. But I mean, 
it's difficult to see how losing another centre forward it would be um, a cracking idea at the moment. But I, I do worry about the centre forward position because I think uh, Lacazette's renaissance and importance to the team, even though he's not scoring bags of goals, is it has been fantastic. But I worry that if you're re- you can't rely on him to play ninety minutes of or ne- nearly ninety minutes of most matches between here and the end of the season. I think the Aubameyang situation is really volatile, and I think if there was going to be a reconciliation, maybe there would have been positive signs already. But the fact that since that incident, the standoff seems to have got even more entrenched, maybe concerns me and doesn't give me that idea that he'll come back after the AFCON and sort of everyone's going to kiss and make up and he'll be available and ready to go for the remainder of the season. He might, but it just feels less likely maybe as the weeks go by. Uh, And Eddie's situation is well known. Plus, you know, for the phenomenal record he has in the Carabao Cup, his Premier League record is not quite so convincing. So... I think that that's a matter of urgency, really, for at least a loan, if they can't secure the kind of person that they want, if Arsenal are serious about finishing fourth. Which would be a huge step forward uh, for the club, wouldn't it? Let's be fair. Um, Let's have a song before we finish uh, this very upbeat, I must say, uh, podcast, considering we got beaten yesterday. Uh, Amy, we'll start with you. I'm going to go for uh, an LTJ Bookham song called Faith. Nice, nice. James? Well, I'm going to go for a Beatles song. I've been watching the Beatles documentary on um, Disney+. Plus. Um, Beatles All or Nothing, if you will. And uh, I'm going to go for Getting Better because uh, it channels the optimism I feel about this team right now. To admit it's getting better Well, let me read you what I wrote about an hour ago. Uh, I've been watching a Beatles documentary <laughs> and uh, I'm going to go for Come Together. Okay, <laughs> okay nice. Because <laughs> that sort of feels similar vibe, really. <laughs> Thanks to Amy and James. Thanks to Abby, uh, our producer. I'm Ian Stone. And thank you for listening to The Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. <laughs> As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel.
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 